a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together. Hi, this is Gino Borges with the Journey to Impact series, and we're here with Barry Lieberman today, who is the co-founder and creative director of Small Giants, an impact family office based in Melbourne, Australia, that invests in and nurtures businesses working towards a more just, sustainable, and compassionate world. Barry is also the publisher of Dumbo Feather, a multi, uh, I was gonna say multi-family platform. It's a multi-platform media company that publishes long-form conversations with extraordinary thinkers and doers across the world. Great magazine, read it all the way back from Sydney, Australia, back to San Francisco when I flew back. Uh, For Barry, professional and personal life are inextricably linked. Uh, She has three kids and her husband, Danny, are the great joy of her life. They enjoy nature together, taking on a wave at Byron Bay and picking tomatoes at their local farm. Welcome, Barry. Hi, Gino. It's great to have you. And, um, you know, the last time I saw you, the world felt somewhat normal. Um, uh, and then all of a sudden, you, uh, as a citizen of Australia, have had to deal with two uh, immense collective tragedies. Uh, one were, was the fires, and then here comes the coronavirus, which is a global uh, pandemic and a global catastrophe, which is Australia obviously has handled it better than some other countries, at least so far. But take us through how you have personally and professionally sort of been impacted um, by this sort of this wave of tragedy. Like, what has it brought up for you? What are some of the practical things that end up happening? And then what are some of the sort of deep th- deep-seated reflections that occurred as a result of this? Um, yeah. Uh, firstly, I just want to apologise if my children do come screaming through this conversation and start asking me to make them toast. <clears throat> I'm making seven, I'm making 7,000 pieces of toast a day in this lockdown life. Um yeah, where all of our lives are sort of exposed, the inner, the outer, the real, the messy, the dirty. Um, there's no hiding on Zoom anymore. Um, there's no control, which is a which is a pretty um, intense experience, you know. We were able to come compartmentalise our lives before COVID and now we're all seeing each other in our fullness, in our homes, in yeah. our inter- and that's um, that's an experience of letting go, isn't it? You know, how many meetings now that we've had on Zoom with our team? We've got a team of about 60. And now, you know, everyone's on mute, swinging their kids in the garden and, you know, co-parenting together. And um, it's really something. It's quite an extraordinary time to be alive. As an Australian going through... First, the fires in January, which killed one and a half billion animals Mm. Mm. and destroyed many livelihoods, 
ripping through rural towns um, along the coast of Australia, along the east coast of Australia. Um, I think for me personally, being being in the impact space, <clears throat> there were plenty of scenarios where this was going to happen. And I think when it hit, one of my, one of my, the fires, when the fires hit first, one of my first thoughts was, ah, shit, I thought we had more time. You never know what the timeline's going to be on the collapse of ecosystems and the impact of global warming. You know, you, you read the science, I've read Deep Adaptation and, you know, we're close with a lot of climate scientists and the awareness of what was coming and how it would impact civilization was still a distant thought. You're like, it's not going to happen now. It's not going to happen in January. It'll happen in 2040, 2050, you know, which is really only five minutes from now. But <laughs> I think that the human psyche just doesn't, even though we have the science and we know the information and we've been preparing ourselves somewhat for those of us who accept the science, um, it's still deeply traumatising and shocking when it happens. And the impacts are still being felt. Obviously, Australia's had such profound economic shocks and social shocks um, through the fires and in some interesting way, we were psychologically prepared differently when COVID hit, I think. There was um, remarkably quite a lot of social solidarity when the fires came through. And Australians have been wanting to help each other, have been wanting to go to rural communities and, and reboot their economies. Um, so there, there was, I sort of haven't reflected on this too much, but there was socially and culturally a, a new kind of social fibre that a cohesion that had come from that shock of environmental um, trauma and we were up in Byron Bay at the time we were living there which is up in New South Wales a rural town a small rural town on the water and the fires were so close and I was telling you before our daughter has asthma and the smoke, the air was thick with smoke and the night sky was, you know, blazing red setting sun. It was really scary and visceral. And I went to Sydney for work um, for a couple of days in the middle and everyone was wearing masks at that time for the smoke, for the inhalation because it was unbearable, unlivable. And anyone who had a baby or a small child was indoors. And yeah, in a way, it weirdly was a test run for what's happening with COVID. I hadn't really thought about that before. Um, but it was a, it was kind of wake up call shock, visceral. The smoke was in the cities now. It wasn't happening outside. It wasn't far away. It was, it was happening to the body. And I think that's a really interesting moment we are now having these visceral embodied encounters with the breakdown of ecosystems and the, um, the fact that the way we've designed the economy in particular, if we look at the meta um, system design that we are functioning within, we're now 
encountering in our bodies how that doesn't work for us, mm-hmm. how we are That's vulnerable. That's a beautiful insight. Beautiful yeah, insight. I, I really feel we we are now, we've had to get to the moment where the smoke is in our lungs and mm-hmm. COVID is, you know. Um, also this, in our lungs. <laughs> yeah, actually, wow. I wonder what someone who's sort of does Chinese medicine would say about yeah. the link between like what the lungs are and and I and I like to think about this these times that we're experiencing sort of on a bigger frame um, because I think it can really help us have insight and any any portal to insight right now to collective wisdom is important I'm, I'm hunting for it yeah I mean how I many know. Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, how does it, it's almost as if imagine three months ago, somebody would says, can we just throw a wrench into the machine and grind the machine to a halt so we can have a moment of time where the freneticism would pause for just a moment, the global freneticism, all supply chains come to a screeching halt. Everybody is compelled to stay home. And all of a sudden to reconsider, just imagine this and ask yourself, what would you want to happen within a window of time? If this lasts two to three months, how would we want to come out of this visioning ourselves? Do we return? Oh, first of all, do we even have a choice to return to the machine? Just take the wrench out. Or even if we pull the wrench out, is there no return and you're going to see something different? I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is like, where's the balance between, hey, we're going to be onboarding pretty soon again, the, the functionality of life. But this may have also provided an enormous um, visionary vacuum to say, to pull out and say, wow, this is where we can go because now it has been felt like you talked about the respiratory metaphor, it's in the body, the fire, the uh, COVID virus impacts the lungs. It's a breathe, it's a breath moment. It's it, it's all of a sudden, both of these constrict our, our breath, right? The COVID restricts the respiratory, allows less, less oxygen to come in. Same thing with the fires as well. It constricts your breath. Yeah. I'm um, just an opportunity to re-oxygenate the way that we live in the world. Yeah, beautiful. I think that for those of us who are privileged enough to bring our heads above survival right now and think about it, I think I say this actually in our Dumbo Feather podcast. We're doing, I'm doing so much content is is just coming out of me at the moment because the conversations that we need to have and we need to share, this is really the moment for exactly what we're doing now, deep diving into um, where we are, where we've come from and where we're going and who do we want to become. And one of the best conversations I'm having at the moment is a mini series we're doing on COVID as a rite of passage. And um, I'm having that conversation with a guy called Dr. Anna Rubenstein, who's been writing, running rites of passage workshops for 25 years at his property in Malambimbi. And we talk about the arc of a rite of passage, that there are three stages, three phases, separation, transformation and reintegration and every rite of passage through ancient times will have that arc 
And so with COVID, we were forced into separation. As you said, a wrench was thrown into the system that you could never have imagined billions of people would stay at home, that there would be, I mean, there are some remarkable things happening on the planet right now that I just want to name. You know, two weeks ago, the Attorney General of the UN called for a ceasefire of all war on earth. And then Saudi Arabia stopped in Yemen the fighting. And actually, in our lifetime, in the last two weeks, there has been peace on earth. Hmm. There's been no conflict on earth because of a virus. What? <laughs> it's just wild. And so separation was forced on all of us at the same time, 8 billion human beings on earth. And now we're in the phase of transformation. And if we are able to have these conversations and really move through um, a deep and holistic transformation process, as many of us as, as possible, and part of that transformation process, it has four parts, and, and one of the parts is storytelling and story sharing, that we can kind of really listen to one another and, and share our stories. And, and then the second part of transformation is a challenge or an ordeal. The Maasai would usually send their young men off to kill a lion, you know, it's a big ordeal. And I was comparing COVID, COVID to a lion. It's our lion. And the mm. point about the lion is it brings you proximate to death and it, it awakens in the human nervous system an awareness of mortality and with that comes humility. Imagine an economic system we design coming out of this when we move back into reintegration that is informed by the shock of the ordeal and the confrontation with the lion and it has humility in it. What would an economy look like if we were conscious that, that death comes to us all and therefore we are a part of living systems and we must be in service to an intergenerational Mm -hmm. justice and that we are one moment in the arc of time we, we, we've designed an economy around our hubris that we can take and extract and we we live forever and some people are in California even trying to design shit that we can live forever and to defy our nature is the system we've designed it, it it's trying to negate our very humanity and what is incredible about this moment is an opportunity to get proximate to it, to be all up in your face with our with our humanity, and 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 then I, I haven't got to the reintegration part of the podcast with Arnie yet, but I imagine it it is a it a, there are structural ways and there are ancient ways we can actually process and metabolize what we're all experiencing and take it with us forward into the future. Now that is an opportunity. Obviously, that's not a gimme. And, and a lot of um, what he was saying was a lot of our leaders are sort of maybe 70-year-old men who are still actually 12-year-old boys. They themselves have never been through a healthy rite of passage where the community can hold them accountable, um, where, they, where they were able to be held by community to move and transition from childhood 
teenagehood to adulthood to elderhood. We all need to hold each other through those stages in healthy ways and we've lost that capacity. So can we reintegrate? Can we think differently? I mean, I think the virus is doing that medicine on our behalves, Mm. um, but no one can predict how we will metabolise and move forward. For me personally, I'm, I'm seeing the impact on our family, on our businesses, and how it's forcing integration of a lot of things really, really quickly. It's forcing collaboration, communication, and, and that's pretty different systems-wise. We've, we've designed a system for competition and extraction, and we're being really asked to do very different things right now. So, uh, you know... I live from a kind of devotional practice of of love. I love the world and I love humanity. So I'm always on team love. <laughs> team love. Yeah. Well, that, you know, you know that last part you talk about in terms of integration is what uh, Joseph Campbell uh, often talked about. Boone. He talked about bringing Boone back to your community, and mm. um, so a lot of the, um, a hero with a thousand faces sort of identifies this, uh, you know, th- this whole rite of passage. And he speaks about those, those moments of where all of a sudden there is that separation. You have to leave your comfortable status. You go to a new scene, you come out of that. You obviously fight something. There's either alligators in the moat or mm-hmm. a tiger that comes out of the jungle that you will have to face something somewhere is going to challenge your mortality at some level, psychically and physically. But he says the key for is twofold on the back end. He goes, people can go on those journeys, and yet if they don't have an audience that's predisposed to welcome them back, and these people are holding their stories and their lived stories inside, and that actually becomes more painful than the original threat to their lives during the transformative moment. So it's, so a couple questions, one here is what do we need to do as a community, especially as a publisher of a multimedia platform and Dumbo Feathers? And really from my understanding, your first devotion is to storytelling and the whole context of things. Yeah. Like, look, there's billions of people that are having an enormous amount of experiences right now that are going through a transformative experience. But if the community is not prepared to um, to actually hold their stories and hear their stories, it can be a lost opportunity. So for you publishers and for people that are gifted in storytelling, how are we going to actually receive stories so that the integration can occur? Not just Not just cognitively, but in an embodied way. Just like the crisis that the fire and the virus has taken on an embodied way. And like you said, it's the viscerality that's actually making this moment possible. How can we take that lesson and apply it where we really want it on the integration side? So, yes to everything you said. Um, that's beautiful to say that because I told you I haven't got to the reintegration part of it. <laughs> so I just helped you out there. So that was awesome. Yeah, of course, that is a major part of it, which is that the community is able to welcome back the initiated and that that's the final stage, that reintegration is a kind of um, really significant part 
and we're all going through it together, which is which is wild. My answer, my sort of intuitive answer to what you said is, you know, I'm a publisher. I ain't no Rupert Murdoch. Like we've got a community, a beloved community of about probably, you know, we pub, we print 10,000 copies of the magazine. There are probably 100,000 people listen to the podcast. You know, it's a size that I'm honoured to speak with and to. I think that the answer that COVID is forcing is localization. Yes. Yeah. That it's not trying to speak to the masses and convince the masses. And I'm not even on Twitter because that, that shit is bullshit to me. A, because it's owned and all your information's owned by corporations and it's not a cooperative. And, you know, there's so much corruption in the modeling and trying to talk to everybody with, however many words you're limited to, like, that's also bullshit. I'm like, I don't want to be limited. I want to have meaningful, deep conversations. I'm going to find the platforms that nourish me and my community. And I think that this is about building local resilience. And that is what this is forcing. As we watch the collapse of globalization, you know, it never was sensible Like, let's just be sensible and practical, not even ideological. It is not sensible to catch wild salmon in Norway, ship it on big-ass ships that chew fossil fuels to China to be deboned and then shipped back to Norway to be sold in the supermarkets in Norway. That's not a sensible supply chain solution. That's just stupid. (laughs) And so what was exposed was the incredible fragility of this system that we designed where we externalised risk to some away place. There is no away. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. You're right. There is no way. Somewhere on our actual planetary boundary the risk will land on the beaches. The rubbish will will wash up on the shores of wherever a way is in the collective imagination. So now we know with the fires in Australia and COVID that there is no away. We need to be doubling down on our communities, building resilience and creating what David Brooks in his wonderful book, The Seven, Second Mountain, calls the moral ecology. We need to reinvest in the moral ecology of our communities and stand up for what we deeply value that lives in service to, I would say, what makes life worth living. The the really, the meaningful, like let's have community conversation about what what those values are and, and then design healthy living systems. We're part of a couple of groups up in Byron Bay and here on the Mornington Peninsula in Victoria around resilient regions. And I know there's a lot of work happening in the US and it's bipartisan. Like, you know what I mean? I I work with people in both um, major parties in Australia. There are lots of awesome people who are politically kind of bucketed, which also feels a bit weird to even be that right now. We should all just be on like team humanity. <laughs> and I think we're being forced to, to break down those barriers. I know that in the UK with the trauma of COVID, a lot of the tension around Brexit has dissolved because they asked for volunteers for the NHS and they got 
you know, 700,000 volunteers. Wow. Yeah, I that's, saw that. That's extraordinary. We are seeing what happens when we function at a, at a different frequency altogether. And, and there's a lot of goodness just waiting to be tapped and, and to serve people. They did a crazy, I've got to send this to you, but a friend sent it to me yesterday actually. They did a survey in the UK like two days ago and only 9% of the Brits want to return to life as it was before COVID. Wow. But do they know what they want to return to? Yeah, they've articulated a slower pace, more yeah. time with family, more time in nature, being connected to their communities. They're, they're saying, you know, I took a meal to a neighbour I never even met before COVID. People are connecting with kind of what is essential and there's now data on what an essential worker is and those essential workers are part of the care economy and the food economy. Um, you know, I, I think I think when you strip away all that extra that we were doing, all the madness that we'd built into the system, we're now being shown the essentials. So let's talk about, the global, so I, it's providing a window into local resiliency. But I met you as a result of globalism, right? So, let, so now how's the dance going to happen? Let's say we come out of this and all of a sudden our communities um, have local resiliency. What does now send moving forward even a, big, a bigger vision? How does the dance happen between the local and the global? Or are we just going to also be always be in this was just a happenstance that I got to meet Barry and Danny in Australia, because essentially that was a global affair. It's only because of global capitalism that I went to Sydney to meet you. It's global capitalism that has your husband come into the United States to meet me and other impact investors. So how do we sort of like do this dance and where does like globalism actually add value? And, where, and we obviously know where it starts to detract. As you said, there's sort of a madness, a lot of extraness to it. How will we ever know, but will there be a, a, a certain amount of minimalist globalism that will actually amplify local resiliency? Or are we all just going to live in our local resiliency and like, I will tell stories 20 years from now, boy, I remember when I was able to access Australia and visit Europe and those are distant stories. It's such a great question. I look forward to how that conversation unfolds around the globe over the next few months because I think we're in a liminal space right now where the narrative and the operating system is up for grabs. So, yep. so that's a really kind of remarkable opportunity we've been given to lean into the redesign what, you know, what's going to rise to the top, what's going to be, you know, like I know in Australia the conversation is between baby boomers who are largely sort of in power, they are familiar with the fossil fuel economy. You know, Australia is an, um, a mining country and we have had this incredible robust economy largely because of our exports of minerals 
<clears throat> and the <clears throat> the opportunity to pivot to a renewable economy just on I mean there's 25 million people in Australia we're an island nation with more sun you know we could export renewables we could have a battery in every home in this country for only like I think somewhere like four billion dollars we could actually implement renewable infrastructure <clears throat> because there's there's big infrastructure issues to the pivot, right, that need to be resolved and incentivized. Like, you know, um, anyway, that's a whole nother conversation. But I, I think what we're talking about is where, where we've watched the complete dissolution and collapse of the old economic paradigm, <clears throat> which has also, as we saw with OPEC and, you know, uh, global fuel stocks around the world and the prices, et cetera, is that that operating system has been ground to a halt. But the infrastructure globally is still there. So the argument to pivot and to like build new infrastructure, that's going to be really frightening for a lot of people, for a lot of politicians that, that are too old to think about it. Why would you bother? Um, because you want to get straight back into creating jobs and, and just do what you know. I think there's a lot of just do what you know will crank the economy back to life. And so putting the case forward has been, there. you know, there's a decade of case studies that if you're, you're in renewables, you're actually protected against the price of fossil fuel. And that's what we've seen. We've seen a lot of data. Will we listen to the data? I don't know, man, you know, I'm still fantasizing while I'm here at my farm about drinking a Negroni in Capri. Like, mm-hmm. I want to travel. I love travel. I want to come and see you on your farm. I want to ski in Utah. Um, I want to be with all of our friends in California and New York. And they're, they're going to, I don't know how we're going to do the dance, as you were saying, and what what balance we can strike between belonging to each other as a global citizenry and doubling down on our local communities and and economies. I think that our hand is being forced, quite frankly. And if you're living in a community right now that is um, fragmented and broken, you don't have healthcare and you don't have, you know, you're not, like for Australians, for example, with the fire, the fires, sorry, it became really apparent that you need to be energy independent, water independent. You need a local care economy that's really robust. We're lucky in Australia. We've got an incredible healthcare system that's available to everyone. And you still wanted to have a a really robust care network in your local town to get through the fires. So I think I think there are some things that are beyond intellectualizing that are being forced and that's a really good thing. And I think that the projections for COVID are way too optimistic. I think we're all going to be in kind of one form of lockdown or another for 24 months. Um, I mean, who knows, right? Who knows? But my instinct is this is a way bigger hit than any of us are really aware of yet. And and the economy as a feedback loop is going to tell us what's working and what's not. But I would say the economy as a feedback loop, like GDP, was the wrong measure in the first place. I think we're going to start to be, we are being, with that 9% of Britons not wanting to return to business as usual after COVID, you know, 
I don't know what after COVID even means, but um, we're being asked to measure GNH. We're being asked to measure gross national happiness, which they do in Bhutan, which is basically communal well-being and individual well-being and people are connecting with other measurements of success than the economy. And that is a crack in the universe where the light gets in. Will it Will it affect us in meaningful ways or will our darker natures return full force and we'll just get, you know, I don't know, but it's a very remarkable moment to be alive, just to taste from what it's like when we're forced to do things differently. That, um I didn't really answer your question. Well, I kind of did. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I was curious. Yeah, I, 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 some, something that came up for me was you recited the English thing about the 9%. Was that 9% that wanted to go back to? Yeah. Okay, so you're saying over 90% don't want to go back of how life. Correct. Gotcha. Correct. Wow. 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 I know. I, I mean, that is wow. I, so, so in some ways, this is a revolutionary protest that nobody could ever organize that was organized for us against the matrix to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like, there's all kinds of people, like, essentially, it's a, I mean, because for somebody to say that there needs to be a pause, right? Where all of a sudden you have enough critical mass having the same experience that and enough people pausing pausing creates an evocation of consciousness an awareness like ah because if i'm always busy and my temporal and spatial patterns are always are always the same there's not enough there, there's not a pause in there to evoke something different and so i i do i think it's fascinating you're right and the thing is is that we're pausing at home we're pausing in place isn't that something else we're pausing yeah. in place as a collective on a planet. So billions of people, over 1 billion children are out of school right now, are pausing at home with their families. Or unfortunately, probably a lot of people, kids at home with a lack of families. Um, and so there's just so much uniqueness and so much possibility, and which, which dovetails into... Um, where I want to go with sort of the final piece of this conversation. And that is, is your passion for storytelling. Like what's going to be the role for storytelling in this space in terms of, you know, you and I know each other through the impact investing space. Mm -hmm. um, obviously storytelling is going to play a much bigger role than just for the impact space. But I, I, I'm really like, how can we, sort of demystify the storytelling role or let's say um you know storytelling since the cartesian split of the object subject got sort of the pejorative uh position in the world of wisdom and insight it's always viewed as a subjective qualitative experience as opposed to like wow this may be the of my ancestors, my evolutionary knowledge speaking is through story, not just through a mortal understanding, through objective science and so forth. 
And so people that understand storytelling really well, how would you make the pitch to say, look, the science is here. The evidence is you're, you can trust your experience that you're having during this pause. You're a big advocate of climate change. You know the science. A lot of people know the science. There's enough white papers for here to the moon, but yet we're not seeing the type of coherency like we are right now. So how may you make the pitch to like say, okay, this is our moment of time. Trust your experience. Trust that what you've read about uh, you know climate, but let's just trust our experience as a moment that we can move forward with. Like I don't need an expert to tell me what I'm experiencing right now. Maybe a real possibility on how to live in the world moving forward. So what's the question? It's like where's the role and the functionality? How do you make the pitch that storytelling is sort of the mystery vehicle? or is the vehicle to actually make this happen? Like where, where storytelling at the table, where storytelling at the intersection of all this. That's so interesting. I, I, I far out. That's so interesting what that brought up for me. I personally, so it brings up two things. One is if you understand the power of storytelling, then just do it. Just do it. I find that a lot of people equivocate or they hedge or storytelling is to, I don't know, I have known, all I know is what I know, right, and and then one could argue I know nothing. So, so all I've known since I was little is that stories have the power to heal us to change us, to frame our world in ways that make it more nourishing, more beautiful, less scary um, or scarier. I mean, I've never been drawn to horror films. I've never been drawn to being afraid, like stories that are, I think that interestingly, the story machine of Hollywood, which is sort of like the big churnout of of most sort of storytelling on earth, got increasingly more violent, increasingly more um, like a desolate landscape of storytelling. And you had to really hunt for a great story that would nourish your soul. Like I'm not, I'm not sure why that was a problem. Like why didn't we want to nourish ourselves with story? And intergenerationally, that, that's who we are. Our deepest sort of embedded selves is to listen to and share stories. So I personally, Barry, just believe in it so much. I'm so beloved of story. It, it has been <clears throat> for me the great medicine of my life. I've never done drugs. I I don't really drink. I was never drawn to other sort of an anesthesia for my pain and my suffering. I was always drawn to content. And, you know, some of my friends, you know, sometimes laughing, one of my girlfriends is a recovering alcoholic and she was binging on ice cream or something and and we were laughing and I said, hey, just binge on content. (laughs) Binge on content. When in doubt, give that a go, you know, Um, because as we absorb stories, stories well told, stories consciously put out in the world, they 
help us be more human. They help us see who we are, know who we are, or reach for who we want to be. And that has always been the power of art. And art became a dirty word in the world. I don't know. It's not for me. I just think there's no truer, more authentic place to live. It forces a sincerity and honesty and authenticity. I just, I feel such an enormous privilege to be able to tell story or or be inside story making. And like, I'm no great wonderkind or or magician, but like story, like a song, like just these parts of ourselves that are intangible, but we're made through the stories we tell ourselves. Mm -hmm. The The stories we tell ourselves mean everything. And if you're in doubt, of that you're in doubt of that but if you believe in that and you've got resources just double down on what is the story you want to tell what is the story what are the stories we need as a collective to really reintegrate to metabolize everything that we're experiencing and to reintegrate into new operating systems that will help us live within the bounds of the ecology and towards human flourishing. How are we going to do that if we don't have the story arc to tell us, you know, this and then that and then this and 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 to really feel and encounter through story those possibilities, those I mean, for me, the stories that I want to tell are ones about wholeness, health and wholeness. How can we be and arrive at wholeness through suffering, whatever it is? But like, I don't, I don't find the organizing principle of trauma to be very useful. So my stories are are, are around like organizing principles of love and service and self-awareness and wholeness, as I was saying. And, and that's what I hunt around in the dark for. And I back myself, you know, I fund my media company because that's why I'm here. I'm pretty comfortable with that now. I probably, I wasn't in my 20s, but, you know, I am now. So I think if anyone here is listening to this and you have an intuition that's, that we need nourishing stories right now to lead us forward. Just fucking go. Now is the time. Tell the stories, share the stories, create the platforms and don't worry about perfect and don't worry about mass influence and who gives a shit. I don't want to be mass influenced. I want to, I want to be moved. I want to be inspired. I want to be enlivened. We're not here for very long on earth, even if we're not hit by COVID, you know, so. That's what I think about story. Wonderful. I'm, I'm here with Barry Lieberman. This is Gino Borges with the Journey to Impact series. Barry, I can speak to you for hours. It's, it seems like we have equal fire and uh, we can go back and forth. I, um, again, feel so fortunate to know uh, you, uh, your husband, and a lot of your wonderful colleagues at Small Giants and to bring in your flair and uh, to understand that, um, you know, you have a particular passion that you articulate, uh, not just about the big topics of COVID, climate change, global society, but when all of a sudden you're talking about how to sort of shape all those as an artistic moment, like as a mosaic to hear, like this is our moment to feel alive so we can feel troubled and traumatized 
or we can see ourselves as a vehicle of spirit, as a vehicle of becoming, not somebody who has become, I am not a victim, but I am somebody that can continually evolve until uh, you know, father time or mother time comes and says it's time to go, and um, you know it's a uh, you know it's a very moving thing. And and for you to uh, take the initiative to do the wonderful things, whether you're doing it personally or at Dumbo Feather, and just uh, giving people a chance, and also people entrusting you and you entrusting them to actually be storytellers. Um, my heart is has always been this sort of this dialectic and dance between the grammar and the poetry. Um, I've spoken to Danny a lot about it. It's a work in progress, a booklet's being formed right now that I'm writing about the poetry of impact. And it touches on this dance. It touches on this very dance that we're talking about right now. It's like, how do we weigh, how do we weigh, um, you know, the global and the local, how do we weigh the art and the science, not as bipolar opposites, but as part of the same continuum. And that's the magic of your voice. So thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Thanks, Gino. You're a legend. So nice to chat. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com. 